Shall we start with praying? I was over there in between the services uh, with Hillsong Durban and Rich is obviously there still sharing and uh, preaching and answering questions and everything. They seem like a great bunch. I think we can like them. I think it's going to be good. <laughs> um, so let's just pray. Uh, Jesus, we love you. We believe in you. We trust you. We trust you for the future that you have for Durban, the future that you have for Anthem, the future that you have for this community that has gathered under the name of Hillsong for the last two years. And we just ask that your will would be done, that you would lead us, that you would be gracious, that you would bring your kingdom through us. In Jesus' name, amen. So it is the season for speech days. And at speech days, there sometimes are a is a fellowship trophy or a few service awards, but mostly it's about celebrating people who have got skill in sports and athletic prowess and maybe intelligence and hard work, obviously, and also influence and popularity. All of those prizes are celebrated and those things are celebrated and it's wonderful. But sometimes it can get to our heads. Because glory is not something that we were really made to shoulder. And as humans, we sometimes struggle with it. We're very easily corrupted when people celebrate what is good about us and what we have accomplished. It's a little bit like uh, two apples look the same. When one is rotten, you don't know until you've bitten into it, until you've tasted of it, that one is rotten. And I think sometimes we can be like that. We can have all these beautiful, build beautiful things, and we don't know until we taste of it whether the essence of it is full of life or whether it is rotten to the core. And that is something that I am going to be speaking into today. I've entitled today's message, Kings vs. Pharaohs. Because we are called, as we heard last week, to be the image bearers of God. We are called to rule and to reign and to have authority and to lead. And sometimes we can lead appropriately as kings and queens ordained by God, ruling on his behalf and with humility and with the intent to be, bring good to others. But sometimes it can be all about ourselves and our glory and everything leading towards us. And that looks more like Pharaoh leadership. And I will uh, explain a little bit more as we go on why I've given them those two labels, kings versus pharaohs. I think that we can all agree that when we come across a leader that understands how to lead like a king rather than a pharaoh, it is something beautiful to behold and to be a part of. So at Northwood, where we, there was speech day this week, the headmaster there, who is a part of this community, Paul Fulion, has recently announced that his tenure is coming to an end at Northwood. And the, the community around him are heartbroken because he has ruled, he has led, to use a more appropriate term, he's led like a humble, ordained person under authority coming to bring good to others, coming to set others into space. There's been a, a servant leadership that has been so, when you've tasted it, it's tasted beautiful. And so people don't want to lose that. That's something that we are attracted by, something that we love to see and to be a part of. And so my question today is, what kind of leadership are we attracted by? Two questions for you. Who do you follow what, is the, what, what kind of success do you think, that's what I want to follow, that's what I want to be like, maybe even that's what I covet, that's what I wish I had more of? Who do you follow and how do you lead? Do you lead more like a king or more like a pharaoh? Do you bring glory to yourself or do you 
in the areas that you have authority, seek to serve others and to bring the life of God into their lives? How do you build? So we're going to be going through, again, a grand narrative, a little bit similar to how we did last week. Uh, And the reason I do this is because we are not Greek. So Greek philosophy says that humans are stuck in the cycle of time, and one day we will be rescued out of the cycle of time and go into a timeless eternity where I think we're supposed to float on clouds forever. I'm not sure. But that is not what Christians believe. It's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what the Jews believed or believe. God of the Bible teaches that although he is Lord over time, he most certainly plays out the human story on a timeline and always will. So just as humans were created somewhere that side along the timeline and the earth was created, we continue on this timeline. And when Jesus comes again, the timeline continues. Eternity continues a long time. And for that reason, yesterday is very important because it affects today. So we need to understand the story that we're a part of. And what we do today, the decisions that we make today, affect every tomorrow. Because we're not going to be taken out of this timeline, but our our todays are going to be affecting our tomorrows forever and ever. Amen. So what we do, what we choose, what we learn, what we understand, and the story that we're a part of is something that we're going to be a part of forever. So we need to understand it, and we need to make good choices for the future of our story. So what we heard last week is that the idea of kings and queens, of humans ruling on God's behalf and subduing the earth and, and, and reigning on the earth on God's behalf was a Genesis 1 idea. It was right when creation happened, the very first time that the idea of kingly rulership or reign came into being is through humans. God says, let us create humans in our image so that they may rule. That was the intention. That was the first time that reigning was brought into the Bible story. And then there's this beautiful creation, there's order, it all makes sense, it's organized, uh, everything is, is being run well, and into that story, humans are embodying the rule of God. If you stop there, and then you skip through your Bible, and you come to Matthew, which is when Jesus arrives on this earth, and he arrives announcing, good news, the reign of God has come at last, you'd think, what? What happened? I thought the reign came in Genesis 1. What was lost? What happened in the story that it had to come again? And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Unfortunately, it didn't take humans very long for the honor, the glory that they were given in being those who were reigning on the earth to go to their heads and to corrupt them. And it started with mistrust, this idea that God was holding out on them that God had uh, given them authority, but that he wasn't giving them everything that they needed. And so humans decided to take autonomy for themselves and to rule and reign their idea. They didn't like this idea of being middle managers, (laughs) of being conduits of the rule of God, but not actually having the authority to decide on the vision and the values and how they thought the, the earth should work, how they thought the organization that they were ruling should run. And so for that reason, that mistrust, they decided to take it for themselves, which results in Adam and Eve being banished. And it is only one generation later, their sons, 
who are now needing to define their own identities, needing to figure out how to rule for themselves. And because they have to work out who they are, there's this idea of comparing between them. And brothers start comparing. Cain and Abel are, are figuring out who they are, comparing themselves to each other. And competition and an idea, a feeling of feeling inferior. And that breeds hatred among the brothers and murder. So it's only one generation later where humans are now autonomous, choosing to rule for themselves that it already has led to murder. Humans, if we go back to my introduction of kings versus pharaohs, humans choose pharaoh's way. They choose to rule or to reign pharaoh's way and rather, rather than the way of the kings that have been ordained by the king ruling on his behalf. Cain then goes out, leads, builds a city. He wants to bring people to himself. He wants to make himself great. He has to define his identity. So that's hard work. And he builds a city to himself a few generations later. Lamech again builds an even bigger city. And he speaks about having many wives, about the violence with which he's going to rule and keep his, his leadership over his city. A few generations after that. And the Tower of Babel is built. There's this kingdom of Babylon. Uh, and the whole idea is that humans have to keep coming, building higher and higher towers, higher and higher kingdoms in order to try and replace God. The humans are not ruling very well. Pharaoh's way is not going well for humans. And a few generations later, the first real kingdom that we hear of is Egypt. And this idea of Pharaoh having a completely different way than the way that God ordained. Pharaoh, so, so before that, there were kings over cities, but Pharaoh is the first real king over a kingdom, the first real superpower. And in order to maintain his pharaohness, in order to maintain his power, he has to enslave other nations, which he does to Israel. He does this by killing them. He kills off babies to keep himself in control over them. And this human kingdom is built on the blood of others. It's built on injustice. It's built on slavery. It's, these slaves are enslaved in order to build cities that the cities are just storehouses for all the goods that this Pharaoh is amassing. And it's the kind of kingdom that I really wouldn't want to be a part of. These kingdoms of the world, humans have decided that they're building alternate kingdoms, alternate ways of ruling where it's my will be done, not his will be done, but I will rule and I will bring glory to myself. And in order to, because I've taken, taken rulership for myself, I then have to fight and kill and do whatever it takes in order to keep it because it was never rightfully belonging to the pharaohs in the first place. And that's where we find the very second book of the Bible, the Exodus story, is about this Pharaoh. And even though the Bible is very careful to put the story onto the timeline of history, the Bible also chooses not to name which Pharaoh it is. So even though we can look through historical records and figure out which Pharaoh it is, the Bible doesn't name him because he is a symbol of the Pharaohs of the world. He is the symbol of what we need to do in order to rule our own way rather than the way that God intended. And so this Pharaoh's kingdom, it's a typical human kingdom. It's all about national security and economy, but it's built on the enslavement of a whole people group. 
And so in this Exodus story, God confronts this human kingdom. It's like the Bible story is all about human kingdoms versus the kingdom of God. It's the clash of kingdoms. That's what it's all about. And as God comes to confront this kingdom, he, Pharaoh is all up for that. It's gloves off. He says, bring it on. I'll take him. I'm Pharaoh. I can handle this fight. And God confronts first the gods of Egypt. And through the 10 plagues, every plague defeats an Egyptian god whether it's the God of agriculture or the God of the Nile River or the God of uh, health or the God of fertility or the God of the, of the beasts. Every God is defeated until the 10th plague, Pharaoh himself, his son dies, and he is the future God of Egypt, and he is also defeated. God first comes and defeats the spiritual kingdom completely and entirely. And then as Israel leaves and the whole Egyptian army follows them, the Red Sea is open, the Egyptian army follows them into the Red Sea, and then after the spiritual defeat is the physical defeat of the army. So God comes to completely rescue this. Humans have chosen Pharaoh's rule. They've put themselves into Pharaoh's rule, and God comes to rescue them out and back into the kingdom that he intended. And we hear there in Exodus 15, the first worship song ever written, written by Moses after, this, uh, after they've gone through the Red Sea. And Moses sings the song, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider, the Egyptian army, he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. The Lord will reign as king forever and ever. And this, last week we spoke of a little trivia fact that the first time reigning or ruling or king, kingship was mentioned in the Bible was actually about humans. That God first ordained that it would be through humans. And then this is the first time that God is spoken of as king. And when God's kingdom come, comes, how does it look? It looks like the complete annihilation of evil. It looks like oppressive empires being completely conquered and confronted and conquered. And it looks like his people being set free again, being liberated and being set into a life of freedom under his rule again. In this very first worship song, and firsts are important in the Bible. Firsts are important in everyday life, I think. When you introduce yourself uh, best foot forward, that introduction is important to set up what people think of you. And it is no different in the Bible. The, the principle of first, this first worship song, is the first time that salvation is mentioned and the first time that God is called the king. And this is how it looks. When God is king, it looks like the oppressors being conquered. It looks like evil being defeated. It looks like people being liberated and being allowed to live in freedom again. It's salvation for the people. And so God's kingdom comes and he does all this and Israel is set free as a nation and invited under the, a new covenant to live as a people free once again back 
Everybody has land. Everybody is a king or a queen in a sense. This, there's this decentralized kingdom where God is king and everybody has his own property, his own fields that he's able to care for, his own ability to build wealth, his own ability uh, to, to rule and reign over a little kingdom that he is able to exercise authority over. So God sets them into that place and then Israel chooses Pharaoh's way again. They come to their prophet and they say, we want a king like the other nations. Not we want a representative of God, a more human representative, but we want a king like the other nations. And they specify, we want to be like Egypt and Babylon. Just like the city of Babel trying to be a god unto themselves, the tower that was built, we want to be like that. We want a king that lords over everybody else so that we know who it is. We want a king like Egypt who build, gathers wealth and armies and is able to oppress and overpower others. That's the kind of king that we want. And you can actually have a bit of sympathy for them because they're under uh, military pressure. The Philistines are, are putting pressure on them and they don't understand God's way. They don't think it's safe. God knew that they would ask for kings, and he had ordained it. It wasn't wrong to ask for a king, although the prophet was a bit upset at the time, Samuel. But it was actually preordained. God had, even when he had set the 12 tribes and uh, under Isaac, they'd said, from Judah, this, this son is where the kings are going to come from. And then a little bit, when, he, when they, he takes them out of Egypt and he'd given them laws, he had said, when you get a king, then this, these are the laws of the kings. So he knew the kings were coming. But the fact that they asked for a king like Egypt and like Babylon, that was what broke his heart. Because in the laws of the kings, it, it was written that the king must not amass an army. He must not amass a lot of gold, and he must not get horses from Egypt. He mustn't do war their way. But the Israelites don't understand how that's going to work because under this pressure, the Philistines, they are afraid, will attack. And they say, if we don't have a king that fights like them and amasses armies and wealth, then how are we going to protect ourselves? They don't understand how to be a contrast community, how to be so different, how to live in this alternate kingdom. They don't understand the kingdom of God. They understand the kingdom of Pharaoh. They've seen it and it's very powerful. That's what they want. They don't understand God's way. And actually, it goes all the way back to Genesis 3. Like Adam and Eve, they don't trust God. They don't think that his way is actually a very clever way at all. And Samuel the prophet warns them. He says, your king, if, if, you, if you do this, you understand he will oppress you. You understand that where you all had land, he will now make you harvest it for him because it will become his harvest off of your land. Your sons and daughters will die in his armies. They'll be his cooks and his cleaners, and he, they will be his slaves. Do you understand that? And they said, we want a king like Egypt and like Babylon. And so even though Samuel knows that decentralized kingdom is the way of God, he gives them a king. And it's not all bad in the beginning. So Saul, the first king, King Saul, is sometimes given a bit of a bad rap, but he did pretty well at actually keeping the kingdom decentralized. Uh, David had a bit more of a popular fan, fan crowd, and so he, uh, there was a few, bit more of a king's court in David's day. He built a, a palace or two and uh, amassed a bit more wealth. 
And then Solomon comes, and we often celebrate Solomon, right, Solomon rightfully as being the one who showed a good picture of the kingdom of God, where everybody was, was prospering. But actually, there is this contrary description that the Bible gives that shows that Solomon is a parallel to Pharaoh. Solomon actually rules in the same way that Pharaoh has ruled. And then there's a poet while Solomon is ruling that, that writes this. It's from Psalm 96. Just a couple of verses, verse 10 to 13. It starts off with, say among the nation, the Lord reigns as king. It's the same, same line as from Exodus. The Lord, the Lord reigns as king. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He judges the people with equity. So there's an acknowledgement that God is king. He's able to rescue. He's able to save. And he has done so for Israel. And it carries on. There's a few verses in between that say, let the heavens rejoice. Let the fields rejoice. Let the trees rejoice. Let the oceans rejoice. Let all of creation rejoice. For he comes to judge the earth. There's this idea that he must still come. He will judge the earth and righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. And so in many of the Psalms, there's this idea, this tension that God is king and we really need him to come and be king. We, God, God rules and we need him to rule more because in these days, we live amongst the pharaohs. To this day, we live amongst the pharaohs. We live among, amongst human kingdoms Though our desire is to live in the kingdom of God, because we understand that that looks like Garden of Eden, peace and prosperity. But it's just so hard because we're living amongst the pharaohs and it's just easier to do things their way. And so Solomon is depicted as this pharaoh, this Israel's version of pharaoh. He's the first king to institute slave labor. He brings in horses from Egypt. <laughs> of all the places he could have bought horses from, he brings them in from Egypt specifically. He amasses more wealth than any king on the earth at that time, because remember Solomon is highly blessed and favored by God. If he was at speech day, he would take home all the awards. And so because he has all that gifting, he's able to pharaoh like nobody's been able to pharaoh before. And so he enslaves people to build his houses and his palace, and Israel becomes Egypt. Solomon becomes Pharaoh, and what a people who are rescued to represent the kingdom of God are representing again the kingdom of Pharaoh. The symbol of Egypt is a pyramid which is built by the Pharaoh as a monument to himself. All starts wide, all the way up to one point. Him as high as possible, as much glory as possible. The better the Pharaoh, the more power you had, the bigger the monument you could build to yourself. And the second symbol of Egypt is a snake on your crown. Just as a snake came to tell the humans right in the beginning in the Garden of Eden, don't trust God. Take it on yourself. Take autonomous leadership. You build the kingdom. You trust your own ability to do it right. Pharaoh's way, the snake is followed through the story and is on his kingdom, on his, his crown, and the snake symbolized divinity. He was a god, sovereignty. He was a royal ruler, which was supposed to be all humans' job, and authority. He was in charge. And so the very thing that belonged to God and to humans, everybody gathers to one, that's the symbol. He's the Pharaoh. Can we all bow down 
to him. It's just a realistic depiction of a human kingdom. Solomon did really, really well at building a human kingdom because he was human and had not yet laid down his life to serve others as a representative of the image, an image of God. And so this is the world, as the time continues along the timeline, that Jesus arrives into. He arrives into the land of the pharaohs. We're living amongst the pharaohs. And Jesus comes, as we know, as we said, if you turn from Genesis 1 through to Matthew, Jesus comes saying, the kingdom of God has finally arrived again. The kingdom of God is here. Now, if Jesus arrived the way that people wanted him to, flexing his muscles and bringing horses from Egypt, would it have been appropriate? He was bringing an alternate kingdom. He was bringing a thou will be done kingdom, not a ma will be done kingdom. He couldn't have done it the way that they were hoping he would do it. It would have been not a contrast community, not an alternate kingdom. It would have been just another human kingdom. And so he comes in a totally different way. Even to this day, Jesus is not the only one who says, I'm bringing God's rule over the land, over the world. There are armies to this day who are declaring that they are bringing the rule of God through bombing and killing and fighting and wars. Jesus doesn't do it that way. When Jesus says, I'm bringing the kingdom of God, he turns around and heals a leper and he kneels down and speaks to a child and he lays down his own preference to serve others and he has meals with sinners and he sets people free and he heals the lady who is bleeding and he sees those that nobody has seen and he lifts up and he starts to build again everybody having their own land. This democracy is, is, is a twisted word, but this idea of equality, this idea of humanity, kings and queens together, he raises people up to that level rather than flexing his muscles to bring the kingdom of God. There is a, a book that we've read that I thought would be an appropriate title for this point, uh, or appropriate word uh, sentence for this point, is The Way of the Dragon Versus the Way of the Lamb. Starts off with a serpent in the garden, gains traction, escalates to a pharaoh. By the time revelation comes, it's a dragon. There is no way Jesus could have come in the way of the dragon, but he came in the way of the lamb, where the only appropriate enthronement was his crucifixion. The only appropriate way to him to, for him to bring an alternate kingdom but actually the original kingdom, was to lay down his life as suffering servant. He'd studied those scriptures we read last week, Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53. It was supposed to be the correct human king's way. The, the king that God ordained would, was to be a student of the law, a student of the Torah, a student of the word of God. And he'd studied and he understood that he needed to come in a different way. And so his crown is a crown of thrones, a crown of thorns, and his robe is given to him, and he is exalted up, as he said he would be, on the cross and not on the throne. That is the only appropriate way for the lamb to bring the kingdom of God. God's arrival as king 
on earth again as a sacrificial act of love. Not only does he come as a suffering servant, raising others up, caring for others, laying down his life for others, but God shows through his conquering of death and raising Jesus from the dead that he so loved humanity that he wanted to reinstate them again, giving them yet another chance to rule and reign as kings and queens on his behalf and to be his image bearers. It was that much that God loved the world. And so in Revelations 22, as we see a picture of what is to come, we see God enthroned, and this is how it looks. The, the, the revelation, the prophetic image shows this. He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Do you see the, the, the Garden of Eden imagery in this picture? What is to come is God taking us back to the point in the story, in the garden with the tree of life, this time with a lamb who has come as a human to show us how to do it, not just to teach it, not just to explain, but to demonstrate what kind of humans to be, and into, in that environment, as the lamb is ruling and the tree of life is back again, there is a crystal clear river. Taste. Taste it. And you will see that it is not the rotten apple. It is not the rottenness. It is the, it is the one that is full of life. It is the fruit that is full of life. Trust me, humans. Have you had enough timeline? Have you had enough story to consider a different way? Consider that trusting God might be the wisest decision after that much history of trying the human kingdom way. And the revelation goes on to say, in this, in this picture, when we have accepted the kingdom of God, there will no longer be any curse. Again, it's going back to before the curse, changing what has happened, going, giving us again a curse-free garden and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his bondservants, those who have accepted his rule again and that they are under his authority, will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night and they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them. And they will reign forever and ever. Who's reigning? The servants are reigning again, again allowed to be the image bearers, again allowed to be the kings of, and queens that get to rule and reign on the earth that is now new, continuing on the timeline, ruling and reigning on his behalf. The question, my final question that I have for you today is, which way do you choose? Which way do you choose? Are you going to continue the human project the human way? Or are you going to be willing to be part of a new humanity? Continuing the human project, but the way that the guy who designed it said it should be done. Which way are you going to choose? Are you going to allow the old humanity in you to be continually overwritten, continue the rule and reign of God to spread within you, until you are transformed into a new human in the image of Christ, in the form of Christ. I understand, 
as I ask you to choose between kings and pharaohs, that not many of you are baby-killing, slave-driving empire builders. But we may be empire builders. We may be thinking that we need to gather to ourselves. We need to amass. We need to promote ourselves and, and be all about our own glory and our own definition and our own autonomy. It started with Adam and Eve not trusting God, but it, it escalated really quickly. Are we going to continue along that human story? Or are we going to choose to do it the way that God intended? The Tower of Babel comes to a point. It's all about one person. The pyramids come to a point. It's all about me. It's all about the Pharaoh of the day. But the kingdom comes as a seed. Instead of a lot coming down to one point, it starts as one point, and grows and spreads, dropping fruit for others to eat, as the life of God continues through us and the kingdom of God spreads. Which way are you going to choose? Are you going to lead and serve for the sake of others? Or is it, are your decisions and your authority going to be about you? Let's choose, friends, to be those who are part of the kingdom of God, having learned from the history, learned from the yesterdays of humanity, wanting to be a part of the tomorrows of the human project done right, done through us, subversively, quietly, while we live amongst the pharaohs. May the kingdom of God spread through us into our homes, our relationships, our schools, as we lay down our preferences, trust that God's way is a better way than ours, do things the way that Jesus demonstrated for them to be done, and trust that it will build a kingdom that God intended. Will you stand and pray with me?